0: Greetings everyone, my name is Joshua Gilliland, I'm one of the founding attorneys of The Legal Geeks. Thank you for joining us for our continuing voyage into the Lower Decks as we analyze Star Trek's second animated series and all the wonderful legal issues. With me is Nori Ely as she is at her uh, brand new desk and in her home office getting set up and ready to litigate. So Nori, how are you doing?
1: Yeah, I'm super excited to be sitting on Proper Furniture. Anyone who's been watching the last few of these podcasts will notice the difference in my background. I'm no longer sitting on the floor on my coffee table doing this.
0: <laughs> it's, you're growing up now, so yeah, it's, <laughs> congratulations. So it's a good thing. It's a very good thing. So this episode is packed with legal issues and Easter eggs to multiple Star Trek episodes spanning decades. So let's rock and roll with some of the big issues that we see right out of the gate. I mean, let's just start with the idea of crashing a party.
1: Yes, so this is um, one of the first things that comes up is of course, uh, Mariner comes up with the brilliant idea of Boimler using his uh, transporter clones identity who does have an invite to the party to go to the biggest Federation party of the year. Um, I. Uh, of course, the actual Boimler doesn't have an invite because, like everyone else on the Cerritos California class ships, apparently do not get invites, even if they are currently heroes. <laughs> so, um, in any event, using this brilliant idea, Boimler does actually get in, even though um, you know uh, Mariner does not make it in as his plus one. Now, it may be something that people have you know thought about. T- doing? Not sure. It's definitely something that has been depicted in television and movies, but the concept of crashing a party, this is not the first time it's been depicted in media. There's a famous movie Wedding Crashers, all those kinds of things. Um, is there a legal issue (laughs) with, you know, it it could be rude if someone discovers that you're not supposed to be there, but is there an actual legal issue involved with, uh, you know, gaining entrance into a party, um, uh, either under false pretenses, so you know you're not supposed to be there, or maybe you just wandered in and thought it was <laughs> open to the public. Um, and the answer is, unless you are, generally speaking, unless you are also committing other kinds of offenses while being at the party, such as assault because you hit someone, stealing something, etc. cetera, what, whatever, setting those aside as separate things, the only real legal issue that is directly implicated by just the act of going into a party that you don't have an invite to could be trespassed. So this is, you know, maybe isn't an issue if it's a, some kind of gathering on public property. I used to live very close to the National Mall. If there was a gathering there that I wasn't invited to and I just want walt- you know, wandered in, um, I probably wouldn't be guilty of trespass if they were also on public property. But if it's a private venue and this appears to be a private venue, right? It was a, it was a, a convention hall, um, there was definitely a bouncer at the front taking names off the list, um, then you are potentially trespassing. Uh, now, so there's two, as with all kinds of offenses, there is always a civil and a criminal (laughs) version of it. Um, the civil version of it, uh, you know, probably not going to be on the hook for a lot of money if somebody did sue you, unless you, again, damaged stuff while you were there. But in general, the bar is pretty low for establishing whether or not someone has trespassed, meaning it's easy to. Um, So unless you were like picked up and thrown into the party, you're probably trespassing. Someone asks you to leave, you should probably leave. And this brings us to the criminal aspect of trespass, because there is, in fact, criminal trespass. It varies state by state, of course, as with almost all criminal uh, laws. Um, which are primarily state rather than federal. In the state of California, um, the statute defining criminal trespass is actually a little bit uh, arcane, let's say. It doesn't really lay out specific elements that take a trespass from civil into the criminal realm it lists about 30 different examples of things that it considers to be criminal trespass you can kind of set just a couple of the examples some of them you know make a lot of sense so entering someone else's property with the intent to damage that property that that makes sense um entering someone else's property with the intent to interfere with activities that that person is conducting there such as a place of business um so that also makes sense entering and occupying (laughs) property, also criminal trespass, um, and refusing to leave private property after being asked to do so also bumps it from civil to criminal. Um, there's some a little more obscure ones like taking oysters or shellfish off of someone else's land, taking soil, dirt, or stone off of someone else's land without permission. This is all penal code for the true legal geeks out there. This is all California penal code 602 PC together with some related sections. Um, And refusing screening at an airport or a courthouse is criminal trespass. Um, Criminal trespass in California is punishable by up to six months in jail and a thousand dollar fine. Although there's lots of lesser penalties that you would be more likely to be found guilty of Uh, especially if what we're talking about, again, is going to a a party and crashing it. And maybe you maybe let's just say you get into the criminal realm because you don't leave when you're asked to. There's all kinds of infractions with small fines that you might probably instead get hit with. Um, But in general, the three elements that distinguish criminal from civil trespass, and then we'll move on to the next one, sorry, I just get really into this stuff. (laughs) Um, If you can kind of deduce these elements from the examples that are listed are that you've willfully entered the other person's property, so that's a pretty high bar of intent, right? Um, normal trespass is just that you intentionally entered, not that you intentionally entered knowing it was someone else's property you didn't have permission to. So that's why I said if you got picked up and thrown into it, you would not be guilty of even civil trespass because you didn't intentionally enter the property. Um, you had specific intent to interfere with some kind of property rights, such as damaging it or, like I said, obstructing business, um, and that you actually did in some way interfere with the property rights. So if you do those three things, chances are you're moving into the criminal territory of trespass and the police may get involved.
0: So let's address two other issues with the parte. One, can you impersonate a transporter clone of yourself? So, yeah. <laughs> because they're technically the same person but they've developed different personality traits at this point in time
1: and we yeah. assume them to be different legal persons they have starfleet has presumably created two separate records for them etc okay.
0: um go ahead josh so yeah it raises the issue of that i think he was falsely impersonating his clone uh, because the clone was now- also
1: a starfleet officer so that it, that, that does raise the game a little bit. I think you know, the idea that if you pretend to be someone else that, it, that, that implicates especially criminal law, in, if it's just like you know, you pretending to be a private citizen and you're not stealing their money or doing something else with that, it doesn't spring to mind unless you have something, Josh, that you're thinking of that, that would definitely run afoul of. But the fact that he's impersonating a, in this, the an analogy I think would be like a federal officer
0: your problem. <laughs> is similar to when Thomas Riker stole the it, defiant and de- except this is I want to go to the party. Still the same issues, still the same violations taking place, but building off your analogy about getting tossed into a party, how about getting beamed in? Because that now raises the issue of kidnapping because you just move a person from point A to point B. Now, granted, that individual did want to go to someplace common, however, where they dropped him in was a loud party where that person would be uncomfortable. So there is some intentional infliction of emotional distress going on right there, because it was an intentional act on Captain Friedman's part to use the emissary uh, Is kind of like a WMD uh, at that point. Uh, with the ladies' man who appeared in the uh, TNG episode, who was DJing the party. So
1: I was gonna ask you, Josh, what that was referencing. Thank you.
0: <laughs> the outrageous uh, Or Or Gada Ortega or O oh O O'Kana yeah, who hooked up with two female crew members on the Enterprise within 24 hours of each other. So things that are totally normal, totally socially acceptable, (laughs) um, uh, even in the 80s. So let's bounce into the next issue. Oh, wait, I wanted to just mention
1: this would be a whole, like, I just went on for like five, six minutes, just about trespass. It would take me easily another like 10 minutes to talk about this topic, but I just wanted to mention it, which is that there are all kinds of really interesting legal issues that we could get into about the ambassadorship. Cause there's really, it, it's something we've covered on some other podcasts. So we can maybe direct you to those instead. Um, but it's a really interesting legal issue about, you know the uh, essentially ambassadorial immunity, what it means. Like all international law, there's a whole ton of practicalities surrounding it. But in any event, just wanted to flag
0: (laughs) that. Mention of sovereign immunity. Is it part of the diplomatic mission? All all those issues. So some of our Black Panther material covers that. And I know we've hit it other times as well. Which brings us to, Quark does have a franchise.
1: Yes. I'm glad we finally, we we definitely established that now.
0: (laughs) And that is cool because it makes all kinds of questions come to mind. Is there a franchise agreement? So it's like a Burger King, or is this like a direct ownership? So he's not like
1: Starbucks, just if anyone's curious, a wholly corporate owned chain
0: entity. Exactly. So, what situation do we have here? And what the, The magnificent Ferengi Cork, I'm not sure which way he would go. I'm sure it'd be profit driven, but does he drive more profit by having control and thus control of his brand Mm -hmm. or would he see it as better to have a franchise model so that way he doesn't have to manage day-to-day issues and just gets a check? I'm not sure. So also
1: if anyone's curious about this is something I've thought about a lot. I used to work at a Starbucks when I was a teenager, and I always wondered how you could end up with two Starbuckses like across the street from each other. And it's because they're fully corporate owned. So you would never have two franchisees. Uh, try to set up two Burger Kings across the street from each other, because each one of the franchisees is trying to make their own bottom line, right? They, they only pull in, they only take home the money that they actually make as profit. But it may, in some circumstances, be better for the corporation or the entity as a whole, for all the Burger Kings, if you open two across the street from each other, because it then... Uh, drives out the wendy's that is also on the same street corner and then they close one of the locations or something like that um so that is actually if anyone was curious why you sometimes see two starbuckses across the street from each other that is why
0: the more you know
1: <laughs> so,
0: so i just found that fascinating that he did branch out and that the court. I'm-
1: from Quark, so
0: much. I, I really do ho- hope Armin Shimmerman does make an appearance yes. because he's a very nice man. So with, with that, let's talk about what happens. We have Commander Data soap dispensers. Some of them might be lore, but that raises an issue of
1: ba- the- I think it's bath bubble.
0: That that bubble, just, just
1: to be exact.
0: <laughs> soap bubble bottles. Uh, was this done with or without his permission? Because California has a law about using somebody's likeness without their permission. And this came about, I'm fairly confident, uh, back in the late 90s, uh, there was uh, a soda company that did some claymation ads with deceased performers and the families of those deceased performers were not happy about that. Uh, So laws were enacted saying you can't knowingly, any person who knowingly uses another's name, voice, signature, photograph, or likeness in any matter, or in products, merchandise, or goods, or for the purpose of advertising, or selling, or soliciting purchases of, and the list goes on and on and on shall be liable for any damages sustained by that person or, or persons injured as a result thereof. Did Data sell his likeness for merchandising? Now- No!
1: So, I can't imagine that he did, especially to this particular
0: person. <laughs> I, I could understand, especially not while not on active duty still. So like, it doesn't make sense for him to.
1: Also, data does not strike me as the kind of person who is driven by desire for, I presume this is Latin. <laughs> yeah,
0: there's that. I mean, I would understand the, the mindset of like, hey, I'm a hero. And he acknowledges people look up to me. Think of the episode Hero Worship. And so he's like, hey, people like me. So I'm cool with action figures of me. Like, I would, I could understand that logic. Bubble bath is something else.
1: You don't
0: see (laughs) a commander data with bath time. So that just seems very suspicious.
1: Well, Josh, no, sorry. I'm just kidding.
0: (laughs) I don't. Clearly you have, so that's okay. Uh, but that that being said, that seems to be just a big violation. So he could sue under this because it's his likeness I ironically so could lore because yeah his likeness as well and before so that's the, right good catch all the sum boys could could go after uh who's ever done this
1: oh couldn't soon as well since he was made in his image
0: yeah but he's dead by now so I know, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he, whatever younger one that we saw on Picard. Theoretically, he could too. Yes. So big, big issues there. That- I just,
1: I just want to note, if anyone who's listening is curious, um, this uh, California statute that we're talking about refers to something that is generally called by lawyers as the right of publicity. Um, it is a form of intellectual property. So intellectual property is intangible things, ideas, um, art. So we're talking, you know, copyright, patents, and and uh, trademark. And it turns out. Right of publicity. Um, it is statutorily created by states. Um, there is, I think, a, I'm not, I have to double check, but I don't think there is a common law right of publicity. <laughs> um, so you'll have to check your state statutes, yes, <laughs> to see. Um, California in particular protects uh, the right of publicity the most robustly. Um, you know, I, I'm sure it's arguable, but generally speaking, it's considered to be the most robust protection, meaning people's, pu- you know, have, have the strongest right to their own likenesses in the state of California. That probably makes sense since. Or at least you can under it's, it's a logical sort of outflow, maybe, of the fact that there's so much media that's made here. There's so many actors and other personalities that live here that do sell their likenesses. There's an interesting debate in the legal scholarship community, at least, about whether or not it should be so robustly protected. Um, especially, you know, you referenced Josh, this, the case that kicked this off was a cartoon involving claymation with uh, likenesses of celebrities who had been deceased. Um, but so, in general, the brighter of publicity, uh, you know, kind of cuts against what we normally think about in terms of protected expression, such as. Parody, um, or in general, for example, just you know, uh, historical figures of, uh, 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 of very po- uh, imp- uh, great importance, like you know, can you use MLK's likeness in a work of art or a movie? Um, things like that, uh, and you know, in general, it, it it just cuts very strongly against what we normally think about as the kind of protection of and encouragement of creative expression that we have. And California does, in the case law, have some, you know, uh, what, how would you put it? Uh, Limitations on the statutory right of publicity that the courts have created, including transformative use and other things that try to address that. Um, But so, you know, for example, if you make a likeness of data But you do so in an incredibly artistic way. It's an impressionist painting, or you've combined him with other depictions of other androids in Star Trek or other artificial life forms, um, which is an, uh, I'm referencing an actual California case in which there was a painting of Tiger Woods along with all the other masters. (laughs) Um, You know, those kinds of things, you know, may transform it to the point that it's no longer simply selling his likeness on a t shirt.
0: See if they did. Art of famous science officers, mm-hmm. you know, like that. That could be very different. Here's uh, to Paul, and like they just carry it forward. Again, it's, but again, that's art. They're not selling merchandise and. Uh, oh,
1: oh, so that is a, le- sorry, this is something I, I really was interested in, especially as a law student, so I happen to know a lot about it, but um, uh, that's less of a useful distinction than you would think, and this is why the right of publicity is a little bit of an oddball in the intellectual property and First Amendment world, because we sell all kinds of things, um, you know, books are sold, newspapers are sold, um, so when it comes to, you know, just putting something on an object, uh, does that render it not artistic expression anymore? If I made a beautiful artistic impressionist painting that included data in it, does it change it if I silkscreen that onto a t-shirt? Um, is it not still artistic expression? Um, so it, it's, it's an interesting problem in the law. There isn't an easy answer because on the one hand, yeah, you don't want people to just, you know, take someone's likeness and make a, you know, The worst versions of this are not bath soap, Josh, as you can imagine. The worst versions of this are like if you take someone's likeness and sell it in something prurient is the word that we use in law. Um, So there's there's definitely, you know, some given, there's a lot of room for debate here as to where the line should be drawn for protecting someone's right to their own likeness. Um, but in any event, just wanted to flag that for anybody who's interested out there in looking more into this issue. Uh, you know, Google the right of publicity uh, and some of the cases around it. It's a really fascinating topic.
0: And with that, that's just <laughs> a first few minutes. I
1: just managed to go on and on about this. <laughs> but this is the legal geeks. So-, so I think I'm in a good place.
0: <laughs> you know, you did the right thing. You have nothing to apologize for. So after they get data, They then get into a vehicle, and they go for a drive to deliver the merchandise, and there's a police stop. Now, whether or not there's reasonable suspicion for the police stop, uh, that does probably, you know, they might not have had a blinker on or lights were out or something. There was some reason that that's not a pretext Mm -hmm. to pull them over. What then happens uh, is we find out that there's contraband in the vehicle and we get into a high-speed police chase. We both did some research on this. Yes. (laughs) Because high-speed chases with the police are bad. Why don't you take the first issue of the duty to not get into a high-speed chase with the police? Yes.
1: So again, the big A little caveat here is that this varies state by state as to how exactly this is going to be articulated. But just as an example, in the state of California, where both Josh and I now reside, um, it is in fact an offense to evade a police officer. (laughs) So if you're curious, you can look up California Vehicle Code, Section 2800.1. Um, so any person who while operating a motor vehicle and with the intent to evade willfully flees or otherwise attempts to elude a pursuing peace officer's motor vehicle is guilty of a misdemeanor punishable by imprisonment, uh, in a county jail for not more than one year. And it lists a number of conditions, um, all of which are, are essentially that the person would have known that it was a peace officer. So it's things about like that the, uh, the police officers using their siren, it's, it's a marked vehicle. They're a light, you know, it's using its lights, things like that. So, uh, there's like six different conditions, but most of them are focused on that. Um, There's also uh, section 2800.2, which is reckless, reckless evading, which is a felony. (laughs) So we're going from misdemeanor to felony. If a person flees or attempts to elude a pursuing peace officer in violation of the previous section, and the pursued vehicle is driven in a willful or want to disregard for the safety of persons or property, the person driving the vehicle shall be punished by imprisonment um, uh, for not less than six months, nor more than one year. That uh, You can also have a fine of um, uh, between $1,000 and $10,000. So it's, it's pretty serious. Um, Josh, do we think they violated either one of those?
0: Yes, <laughs> definitely. There's no doubt. There's no reasonable doubt If you take your vehicle upstairs, going through aquariums.
1: Narrowly avoiding pedestrians. Yeah, yeah, there's just like, it's not just that she put things in danger. She destroyed quite a bit of property, made people jump out of the way to avoid getting run over by her vehicle.
0: Yeah, and lakes aren't parking spots like that's not something as
1: far as I that's actually could be a separate thing too is maybe she has a citation. For yeah, yeah, that, like,
0: that's, that sounds more like mob hit. Uh, so it's not something we do. Uh, you know, it's like bodies don't get dumped in the river like that's not how this is supposed to work out. So just based upon all of that. There's still the, the old-fashioned reckless driving without a police chase, and that is a person who drives a vehicle upon a highway in a willful or wanton disregard for the safety of persons or property is guilty of reckless driving. A person who drives a vehicle in an off-street parking facility and a willful or wanton disregard for the safety of persons of others is also reckless driving. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Granted, that, that uh, sentence can be anywhere from five to 90 days uh, and a fine of at least $145, but not to exceed 1,000. So still not a good day. Uh, not a
1: good day. Definitely don't recklessly drive to evade a police officer is, is all. You can take that advice to the bank.
0: <laughs> if someone had gotten hurt or killed, that would bring up involuntary manslaughter, and- A lot of
1: states have a separate statutory Terry, also for vehicular homicide. Yeah. Uh, so that may be implied depending on what state you're in.
0: Yeah, It's not good. So yeah. there's lots of reckless driving. Uh, the police were justified in going after them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, there, there's no gray zone here of like, well, I don't know what was reasonable. What they did was unreasonable. It
1: is interesting that a lot of states have um, implemented practices or even laws to prevent police officers from pursuing high-speed chases, but this is not so much a legal issue for lawyers and judges to, to ponder on as it is a policy matter, but some states have chosen as a matter of policy um, that the risks and dangers posed to the public by a high-speed chase are generally outweighed by the benefits of capturing the person, unless you know a lot of these policies typically include a caveat, unless they're the person being pursued is like armed and dangerous. <laughs> Um, because you can often track people down after the fact, if you've gotten a plate, if you've gotten a look at the person, if you, you know, sometimes people take off after you've already taken their identifying information because they know they may have a warrant out for their arrest, those kinds of things.
0: So things like police helicopters, some have gotten into drones, that's an entirely different issue. A
1: can of worms.
0: <laughs> big, big, that's. As long as they're not doing drone strikes, I think we're safe. But again, it's little things like that that go, that's a little too Orwellian for our... Yeah,
1: I'm I'm sympathetic to the skeptical instinct when it comes to increasing capacity of the state to surveil its citizens.
0: Just because we've used it in combat does not mean we should use it in law enforcement. Because sometimes we get it wrong. Yeah!
1: And it's a thing that I hear from, you know, I will say lay people, but by that, I mean, often my parents, (laughs) like, you know, well, if you have nothing to hide, what do you have to worry about? Um, The thing is, is that in in a free society, the question is always, why should the government get to look at what you're doing? Um, there's a lot that we should be able to do in the privacy of our homes. The other thing is there's a lot that people can do that is legal, but isn't embarrassing <laughs> um, or that we wouldn't want other people to find out about. And if we knew that the government could be watching in on us at any time, we might not do, we might conform even in our own private spaces. Uh, and so I, I prefer the default instead, which is why should the government be able to enter the private space?
0: The, the, the mantra that only the guilty have to fear the police, that is, that's a police state. We don't like that. Mm-hmm. We want probable cause as opposed to, you know, like, well, you charged him. There's, He's got to be guilty. No, no, that's not how we work here. That tends yeah. to bother us. So, no.
1: So let's... Josh, Yes. could I talk about the jurisdictional question?
0: Oh, by all means. <laughs> Break out the... Cif-
1: yeah, and um, well, it's also it, I could use maybe a little of assist from you because it implies some maritime law, which is just sort of a what I consider to be sort of like a big umbrella question here. That at least for me got me scratching my head when I was watching this. This is this is why we're the legal geeks. Is you know who was station security? They weren't Starfleet, were they, Josh?
0: Com badges. Yeah, watched for the com badges. So. Where have we seen space stations before? We've seen them in some of DC the original...
1: DC-9, but that was a Federation space station.
0: Well, Bajoran with Federation invited yes. in. And so security was both Federation and Bajoran.
1: But in, in both instances, it's a public, you know, a, a, a official authority as opposed to uh, private security.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We, uh, was it K-7 in Tribble with Tribbles? I don't think we really saw much security there that the station provided. No, I
1: think, yeah, you're right. I think we mostly Uh, saw Kirk and the crew doing so.
0: Yeah, and because the Enterprise crew was helping uh, to make sure that the Klingons weren't getting into trouble. So Mm -hmm. episodes from Next Gen where like the ship goes into space dock, those were clearly Federation, Starfleet bases. Right. This is different. It's a... Be private right I, that or it's federation so it could be still a governmental agency but it's not military so it's like yes. think of it as like you go to oh what's a good example uh maybe guam like you're in a u.s territory and there's a naval base there but the entire island is in a base right Uh, compared to Diego Garcia also known as Gilligan's Island where you would have a big naval base that I think is just the base Mm so again very different Or Guantanamo Bay like there's no civilian component because you're in Cuba at that point or
1: as I was saying there's some implications here with maritime law you're on a cruise ship (laughs) flying an American flag Hmm. um but so for You know, for anyone who's wondering why on earth I would sit here pondering whether this is the case, it's because it kind of matters as to at least what security can do to Boimler and Mariner had they caught up with them, right? So if what we're talking about is that either there's some kind of Federation securities, they are proper law enforcement, right? They carry badges, they have the authority to arrest and charge people um, under Federation law then, you know, that yeah, they can arrest them, they can, you know, within a reasonable amount of time charge them, but keep them in jail until then. Um, However, if instead what we're talking about is that there's some kind of private organization um then first of all we could be dealing with just you know your average mall cop (laughs) they could they could be authorized to detain and maybe prevent them from committing any further acts of you know uh, violence or force against their property or customers um but in terms of like what they can actually do if they catch up to them um, your average private security, they're not law enforcement unless they've been deputized, so they can't detain you and try you. <laughs> they can't detain you, charge you and try you. They can only detain you in order to hand you over to law enforcement. Um, they can lead their own you know, private investigation in the sense that they may gather evidence um, in order to present that to law enforcement or in order to pursue civil charges against you for things um uh or civil claims i mean sorry um but it's a very different world uh, if we're dealing in private versus public the other thing that really got me thinking about uh this issue josh is um just it, it got me on like a very conceptual level here what is this space station is it federation territory um so therefore is it you know federation law applies the federation shows up if something threatens them militarily um or is it private and completely private? Because there are some interesting questions there. Is this a cruise, like a cruise ship where you're in international space, in this case, international waters, um, in which case, uh, as I'm sure you are very much more familiar with than me, Josh, about maritime law in general, if you are on a cruise ship, uh, the domestic laws of the flag, the cruise ship is flying, apply. Again, unless the cruise ship's security has been deputized, they could just, if you commit a crime, like you, you punch one of the employees or you break some property there, they can detain you to hand you over to law enforcement. They can't, you know, uh, execute criminal justice themselves. Um, but they would definitely have the authority to detain you to prevent you from doing further crimes and to hand you over to law enforcement. Um, and then the last one... That- what was interesting was you know is this instead the Republic of Sealand? So <laughs> if anyone know, doesn't know what the Republic of Sealand is, I encourage you to Google it. It's adorable. Um, it's essentially uh, as part of the defense against um, the uh, Germans in I believe it was World War Two. It could be wrong, but I think it was World War Two. Um, Britain set up a bunch of uh, essentially. Uh, uh, Platforms that were actually, you know, grounded permanently into the seafloor, um, a fair distance off the coast of England. I believe technically outside of the zone of territorial waters that would designate it as their sovereign space. It was had to be far enough away, right, to serve as a warning if there were incoming planes or other uh, some kind of invasion. And a man moved in <laughs> several decades later. There's a whole story behind it. I won't get into it. You can Google it. It's adorable but essentially declared himself his own country (laughs) (laughs) because they were long abandoned after World War II. Um, And there's really interesting questions, of course, as to whether or not the Republic of Sealand is is actually its own country, Um, but it does issue its own passports. (laughs) It issues its own titles of nobility. Um, It has its own currency. Uh, uh, And to be fair, there are, as I mentioned at at the brief mention that I did with the ambassador law stuff, A lot of international law is about practicalities rather than formalities. Um, So in all, for all practical purposes, the Republic of Sealand is a republic and its own sovereignty, because England tolerates it being so. If someone showed up to invade the Republic of Sealand, I think they might still need to call the Brits to help them out. But is a space station Analogous to that, and this was really interesting to me, Josh, is it, could you, could it be its own sovereignty? Um, And this was like, and it got me thinking about, you know, normally when we're talking about earthbound terrestrial sovereignty, um, owning land, having land, control over land, is the touchstone to whether or not you're a sovereign nation. Um, although, you know, in, we, we, we have very interesting maritime law that sort of reflects the reality that at least a long time ago when you were at sea, um, you couldn't contact, you know, home base to get further process or instructions in a lot of instances. So captains had essentially uh, fiat control over uh, the, the legal processes on their ships. Um, so it's interesting then, you know, does this does this actually port into space when we're talking about science fiction or maybe the not so distant future? D- d- do you need a chunk of rock, a chunk of asteroid, something you know, in order to claim sovereignty in space? <laughs> uh, and I know this is probably <laughs> departing a little bit from the episode, but it did make me wonder, you know, what, what is this space station? Could it actually have its own sovereignty as a practical matter, it probably doesn't, because as I was just discussing with the Republic of Sealand, um, they probably don't want to be their own sovereignty. Even if it's a private organization or person who owns the space station, they probably don't have the resources to defend themselves if some space pirates showed up. If you know, the Cardassians showed up and decided this was theirs now. (laughs) So they probably are part of um, a larger sovereignty that can protect them against those kinds of threats. Um, It's also a lot of work and overhead to actually maintain a criminal justice system (laughs) and all that stuff. Um, But it is an interesting question. And we see this a lot in sci-fi that you do have, like, I'm thinking about Mass Effect, where you have the caravan um, of, uh, you know, uh, I'm trying to remember their names off the top of my head, but the, the race that was uh, uh, kicked off their homeworld because of an AI rebellion. Um, and they have their own sovereignty, their own culture, and their own nation in this traveling caravan of spaceships. Um, and it seems, it doesn't seem right that the only, that the touchstone to sovereignty in space should be that you've got a piece of rock attached to the whole of your spacecraft. <laughs>
0: We don't need to get into comparative analysis of shows like Gundam or Babylon 5, which touch on space stations becoming independent nations or at least attempting to. So let's table all that.
1: Yeah, I I was going to say this is a slightly different universe where in Star Trek, it's been established since the original series that space is literally divvied up by drawing lines, through three-dimensional space, and color-coding it Federation Romulan (laughs) Klingon. So that does solve a lot of this.
0: So, and somebody had to build it, So, and and they have to sustain it. The International Space Station is not self-sustaining. Like, if they're not getting supplies, they're all going to die. And then they'll have to abandon ship so they don't die. So at some point, commerce has to flow. So these things, the space stations in Star Trek frequently are are along the lines of port cities in space. And they exist for commerce to flow. Mm -hmm. Which is why you see a Vulcan ship and multiple species docking and... Carrying on commerce, which is why I, I believe if there is life out there, the idea of like, oh, they, they try to invade us. It's like, no, nah, I'm thinking they might want to open new markets, which is there's nothing wrong with that. And if both sides have somewhat parity, so one doesn't get run over by the other, you can have functional non-invasive relationships with alien races because it's about opening new markets and exchange of ideas. And it's, you know, there can be peace as opposed to one side wanting to obliterate the other. That said, I don't think it's an independent nation. Yeah, I, I, think it, right. I think it's, it's just a Federation outpost. The Starfleet is heavily there. All the member races we see are Federation. Mm-hmm. So with the exception of the Frangi, but OK, because there's there's another Frangie, uh Billard's room uh, as well. So, again, the frangi are there making money. So good for them.
1: I think you're right. And I wanted to say that you had a great insight, Josh, which is about trade. So another reason why um, the Republic of Sealand may or may not be its own country. Um, Similarly, for example, so, you know, if anyone could go set up, you know, go take a banded oil rig and create their own country, um, let's say that you did that and then decided that in my new country where I can make laws, all drugs are legal and your uh, little uh, uh, tiny station country becomes a conduit for illicit drug trade. (laughs) What do you think will happen? The country you're off the shore of will probably embargo you like probably station some ships around you and prevent all ships from coming in or out. and you kind of need that to get your food and water and all of that stuff.
0: You're self-sustaining you have other means of survival. If you're not, fresh water is going to be a problem very quickly. So food. But
1: very interesting conceptual issues here if any again law professor teaching international law, Need some interesting thought experiments to talk about the concept of sovereignty. Uh, the Space Station and the Republic of Zealand are great ones.
0: Fascinating. So let's talk about some of the Easter eggs that are in here. And ones that I saw in the bar uh, included uh, the, galaxy, the Guardian of Forever. We have the Phoenix, the first warp ship from Earth. We have mm-hmm. the Queen's machine. We have the box from First Contact that seems to be playing the music that was played on it. So that's all cool. I couldn't tell from the artwork on the walls what kind of references were there. And I'm sure there's somebody who's gone through and tried analyzing those and can list them all. So those were all uh, Easter eggs I saw. Did you see any?
1: Yeah. Is it an Easter egg for the full body uh, life support?
0: Oh, yeah. It's, mobile yes. unit? <laughs> yes. Uh, there are char- the avian characters. We've seen them before in prior animated series. So the original. Oh, okay. Okay. So, um, so that was a, a little callback as well so they're in the the vehicle looked like the one from nemesis that uh the crew of the enterprise goes driving around in so uh so again they do work in little homages and i'm sure there are a ton of other ones uh the entire model building you know the mo- yeah. the model building kits for early star trek fans was huge and a lot of those models are go- glorious uh, to look at, and like, I get that. You could see some of the model building groups on Facebook, and people work really hard mm-hmm. to build a D7 battle cruiser or their own designs or a Miranda class ship, and it's like, okay, that's cool. That's just really neat. So uh, the fact that they're down to, like, little miniature crew members, and the, the model actually works.
1: Yes! Uh, it actually fires phasers.
0: And... It has a warp core, so Yes. That's explosive. <laughs> there would there would be a warning label on that box at the minimum, because you that, can just like, ma- that thing. It's like there's matter antimatter, you know, going in for the fictional warp core. There's got to be licensing requirements for that. It's like you can't have a model aircraft carrier with a miniature working nuclear reactor. We don't want. Potomal. No,
1: no, and actually there are lots of laws, Josh, about nuclear material and trying to. Don't do it, kids. Don't try it.
0: Yeah, it's there's the story about the Boy Scout who built a nuclear reactor as part of like a merit badge. That, uh, yeah, it's like that it goes back a ways, uh, <sighs> decades, but it's just like, oh, oh my, um, pretty sure he got Eagle, but. Uh, <laughs>
1: Do a visit from the Department of Energy. Yes,
0: we reward that conduct and I'm sure he'd have a great job later in life. But uh, there would be a warning label. Yes. Now the, the entire uh, Dupler race, they could have serious survivability problems because if you multiply like tribbles, if you're nervous... How have they survived as a? Species?
1: I know, right?
0: <laughs> How many of them are there? And or do maybe they...
1: in their amongst themselves, they're constantly berating each other. <laughs> Would that
0: work? It just or I don't know. It's <laughs> it's their medication that they're on constantly, so they don't lose it.
1: Also, Josh, can you imagine the legal issues if we lived in a universe in which you or I could duplicate at the drop of a hat?
0: <laughs> Again, it's the Boimler issue with having yeah. your own clone of, but they're the same person, but they can merge back in. So that's at least convenient for... What if one of them
1: doesn't want, sorry, doesn't this, want to merge back
0: in? Or, or gets, you know... Uh, disruptors used on them and they're gone like mm-hmm. what happens then to the rest of them so oh
1: and is it in fact a crime to destroy uh, a non-original right duplicated duplicate
0: <laughs> and who is the original how can you tell so like because right? it's not like one gets a mark so there's all kinds of weird issues with that but since we just had the Trek 55th anniversary, I've been asking judges and other lawyers some Trek questions. So this is for you. What does Star Trek mean to you, Nari, Ely?
1: Um, I apologize if any of these sentiments are things that you've heard in your previous interviews, um, but I do think Star Trek is an aspiration Um, it is a aspirational expression of what it means to be a free and just society of what it means to be a society that simultaneously champions the rights of the individual to be who they are to the greatest extent possible. while at the same time, unifying around that common ideal, um, it is the best expression that I can possibly imagine of what I imagine America to be. (laughs) Um, and yeah, if, if, if that is the future, I, I, sign me
0: up. How has Star Trek inspired you to be a better person?
1: Oh man. So, um, I think it inspires me on a daily basis to, uh, in the sense that it gives you an an image of that aspiration. It gives you heroes who try to embody the aspiration of treating people fairly and justly, approaching everyone as an individual rather than a representative of a group. Um, And I think at a more abstract level, um, Star Trek has always been very intellectually challenging when when it's at its best, at least. It, It gives you really interesting things to think about, to really contemplate what the values you hold actually are, what they mean and how they interact with each other. Um, and in that sense, I think it has certainly made me a better person because I have a much deeper understanding of, of what the values I hold are and why I hold them.
0: Your character.
1: Oh, oh that's so hard. I, I have to say, I have to say Worf. <laughs> and I don't know if you've heard that one yet. But um, I mean, he's one of the, for, first of all, just as like, you know, a, a, from a fan perspective, he's one of the characters who's in, you know, multiple of the series he actually, this is a uh, deep trivia that I actually have is that his actor, not the character uh, Worf, but his actor appears in one of the uh, original series movies uh, when uh, Kirk is being put on trial by the Klingons.
0: Undiscovered the country, he plays his grandfather. Yes.
1: So uh, so he's in you know a lot of their fran- uh, of their series and across a lot of the time in the story. Um, he is a outsider character which I know a lot of sci-fi fans identify with. Um, and just you know, on a personal level, um, you know, uh, he is a Klingon being raised by humans. He has sort of this mixed, identity um that, that's going on and so as, as someone who comes from you know i have a korean mom and an american dad uh, i definitely identify um with you know not quite feeling perfectly at home with either culture and being something a little unique and to your own
0: so this is a hard question What's the favorite series
1: so i put a lot of thought into this t- <laughs> a lot of thought gone back and forth over the years um, I have to go with Deep Space Nine um, in part, because again, it's, you know, if Worf is my favorite character, this is one of the series that features him and his personal development a lot. Um, it's Besides that it's a cast of really wonderful characters and actors, um, it, it puts the values of Star Trek and the Federation in the most challenging context, I think. And in that sense, because you have, because they're interacting with the Bajorans, right, who are a deeply religious society, um, because they're interacting with the Cardassians, um, who, as a society at least, are incredibly fascistic, totalitarian, but there are also Cardassians living on the station who become quite beloved characters. Um, it, it, it puts those those values and those ideas. In the most challenging contexts. Um, And I think because of that gives you the best opportunity to really elucidate what it is that they mean. Um, And, you know, again, why, why you hold them and why you think that they are the best. Because if you don't challenge those ideas that you hold in those ways with the the, the hardest possible context to try to apply them in, Um, so thinking Keiko trying to teach uh, Bajorans who want to hear some of their religious context in their school, if you don't put your ideas in the hardest possible context, or as you and I, Josh, as lawyers, you know, come up with the best, strongest possible argument that the other side could make, you don't really know what it is that you believe, and you don't really know why it is you believe it. Um, and so, because of that, I, I I I cherish that. I also Jadzia is like a really close second for my favorite character. So, <laughs> um, uh, I have to say, Deep Space Nine, and uh, of course, Captain Cisco. Um, is just such a fabulous captain. He really epitomizes his actor, also really epitomizes the tradition in Star Trek of um, uh, uh, employing theater actors because his delivery of a lot of monologues is just like beautiful and powerful and would have been the star of any, any sto- show on stage.
0: Very good. So final question about legal issues in Trek. We have trial episodes, We have legal issues that don't come up in trial, but are presented in a very powerful way and sometimes very subtly. Of all of those legal issues, out of 802 episodes now, what one stands out to you the most?
1: That is a tough one. (laughs) Because you and I have covered a lot of them together, too. Um, I have to say that it it's the legal issues involving what is a person, I think. Um, because the law, you know, even as I just talked about law that champions the rights of an individual has to be premised on a definition of an individual. What is a person in the eyes of the law? Um, This is covered most directly when we're talking about, um, you know, commander data, um, or the doctor on Voyager. Um, but, you know, it also comes up in, uh, I think the episode of Voyager involving two (laughs) Um, and you know, what is, yeah, what is a person, um, in the eyes of the law? And I think as a, it's just such a fundamental issue that, we, we do actually deal with even in, re- in, in, in our world in current present day, um, you know, we're, artificial intelligence continues to develop um, and our legal system is, you know, may or may not be fully prepared to deal with an actual self-aware um, artificial intelligence, but we, we probably are getting there some, sometime pretty soon where it'll be harder to distinguish between an artificial intelligence and a, a flesh and blood intelligence. Animal rights deals with similar problems in, you know, actual earth, current day contexts. Um, How, you know, why and how do we distinguish between the rights of a a human, you or I and the rights of a dolphin or a cat, um, or a horse. Um, And those are hard questions, they deal in philosophy, they deal in deeply held moral or religious beliefs. Um, And they're, they're very challenging questions. And it's a fundamental premise to the law. So I think those have to be my, it has to be my favorite issue and those have to be my favorite episodes.
0: Very thoughtful and also pop quiz for (laughs) taking a stand on what you believe in. So well done, well done. Did you watch any of the Star Trek Day celebration or videos that they put out with trailers?
1: Not yet. Um, I definitely plan to. I had a I had a quick question, Josh. On the on the celebration poster, there's a woman with short hair on the right side. Is she from the one of the animated series? Because I actually didn't recognize her.
0: So it depends which woman with short hair. One could be um it could be the upcoming animated series Prodigy. Oh uh, or it could I didn't
1: realize there was a new upcoming series.
0: <laughs> that's one of them. And or it could be one of the characters from uh, Discovery season three, who
1: mm.
0: was non binary and prefers the pronoun they. So,
1: oh, but I know that one and it's not her, so it's got to be the animated series coming up.
0: <laughs> then that would make the most sense. So, uh, or they,
1: I know them, sorry. <laughs>
0: good. good. <laughs> you have to watch out and. Be mindful. So,
1: excellent. I just want to. I just want to mention that that like that was a pretty obvious, I think, work in for the trill <laughs> that you have an entity in you that has been multiple, perhaps even within that non-binary genders, and that gets implanted in you, and it's it's a blend of your consciousness and that consciousness. Whatever you were before, what are you now? <laughs> That's such an obvious. I'm glad they 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 talked about that because that is such an interesting question of identity and personality. And yeah, the, the Trill is such a great work in for that.
0: It's an interesting mental health question as well for if you have someone who gets joined and you have a Trill symbiote that's lived 10 generations, what do you become and mm-hmm. what happens to your identity so the idea of like the therapy that that one would have, because it's one thing if you're like Chad Zia, it's like five lives in, still yes. a lot. Yeah. But is that wisdom, you know, built upon experience? If somebody's lived like a dozen lives or twenty lives, what happens when you? Is that a, overwhelming? What happens to the current host's personality? Uh, for for that kind of merger. I don't know. That's something that uh, we would call in an expert witness.
1: Yes, definitely. Not, not me.
0: <laughs> We're lawyers. We know how to do questioning. Uh, but we'll leave that for the psychologists and therapists who do podcasts and analysis of Star Trek so they can explore that because that is uh, a weighty issue. So with that, everyone, thanks for tuning in. Uh, We will be back, I think, Thursday next week. So we'll do it that evening after uh, we'll watch and and be able to dive in because there are things happening that Friday we're going to be busy. And uh, everyone stay safe, stay healthy, and above all else, live long and prosper.